I haven't uh, been here in the pulpit since, since we got the landmark news that Roe versus Wade was overturned, or that was, it was the Supreme Court overturned that, and that now that that issue becomes a state issue. And I was listening to a podcast, and the podcaster said something that I think was pretty astute. And he said, you know, this is not the beginning of the end. This is just the end of the beginning. Meaning that there's a lot of work to do. Meaning that Christians and the church do need to arise. The Christians and the church do need to step forward. We need to learn what it means to to love women and children that are in vulnerable positions. We need to know what it means to really protect life. Things are going to be complicated. There's a lot of work to do. And really, this is the end of the beginning. And we are called to kind of really roll up our sleeves and get involved and to work. And in some way, as I was listening to this podcast and thinking about this sermon, it struck me that this whole idea that it's not the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning is kind of what we get here at the end of Mark. I mean, it's interesting, we get here to the end of the book of Mark. And the disciples are scattered. All of his followers are, are not to be found except for these women who are at the tomb. And there's just a handful of them. And it's really, as we look at this time, it's really, it's really the end of the beginning that Christ had came, He had died, He had risen from the grave, and now it's almost a, now what? And what's amazing to think about when we look at the end of this book, we think about the state of the church on this day, in this moment, And we look forward thousands of years and we see what God has done through his faithful servants. And we're just blown away. I mean, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. When I use that phrase, it's not the beginning of the end. We are in end times. The next major event to happen is Christ's return to, to, to come and gather his church. But what I'm just trying to point out by saying that is that there has been a lot of work that has been done, that men and women, God's chosen, His people, His bride, His church has been formed. People have stepped up, have worked. They have laid down their life. And I was struck last week as I was on the way home from the beach and listening to to Damon preach last week. As he was calling us to the reality that we live in a a kind of a strange and crazy time, but it's in these strange and crazy times in which God has called us that we have a work to do. We have a part to play. And just like Just like when we look back and we look at this time and we know what happens if you are familiar with the Bible and we look at the book of Acts and we see the church being formed and we see what these men and women go through. Just like them, 
we too are called forward. We're called forward to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him, to proclaim this gospel to our friends, to our neighbor, to our culture. And it's worth it. It's worth it. And this book, this book of Mark, is calling us forward, calling us into this adventure, calling us into what life is really all about. And the tragedy for us, the tragedy for us, is that many times we live a life in which our relationship with Christ or our faith, it's just a part of who we are. You know what I mean by that? Instead of our relationship with Christ, instead of our faith completely defining us, that we are sons and daughters of God, that our Christianity is just a religion. It's just maybe a box that we check. It's just maybe a part of us, a section of us. And that's not why he came and died. He came and died to completely ransom us. And when we truly understand who he is and what he has done, we should be overwhelmed. It should be the thing that defines us. But so often it's not. So often it's not. And if it's not what defines us, then the moments that it gets hard, the moments that our safety may be threatened, the moments in which, you know, we may lose some cool points for following Christ, we end up kind of like these disciples scattered in our homes, hiding. And this is why the ending of this book is so valuable. This is why the ending of this book is so valuable. It, it helps orient us the right way. It helps us to see what we are supposed to see. It helps us to, to gain the understanding of exactly who he is, what he has done, and what our response should be. And it's very interesting to me, it's very interesting to me, how subtly and how strangely this book ends. Can it really end here? Can you end a book this way? If you look in your Bibles, I want you to look, look in your Bibles. If you look, I only read through verse 8 this morning. And if you look, starting in verse 9, most of your Bibles, all of them, starting in verse 9, should have a bracket before the word now. And then at the end of verse 20, there is another bracket after the word followed. And the reason for this is that most scholars, most, most and this, is, this scans the board, most conservative, Christian, inerrant Bible scholars believe that this text ends in verse 8. That what we have in our Bibles, verses 9 through 20, that's why it's in brackets. 
was added later. And one of the things that we have to understand, especially some of you kids in the audience who may never heard this before, is that um, computers and copy machines and printing presses have not been around forever. And so literally what had to happen is for the Bible to get into other people's hands is that you had men called scribes who would literally write. That's all they would do is write the Bible, write the Bible, write the Bible. And what is pretty clear is what happened is that sometime probably in the in the two to three hundreds is that some scribe did not think that the book of Mark should end this way and thought it needed some explanatory things to end and added what you have in verses 9 through 20. One of the reasons this is so clear is that the earliest manuscripts that we have end at verse 8. That the early church fathers that wrote about the book of Mark seem to have no idea, uh, no recollections of verses 9 through 20. If we really wanted to kind of geek out on this stuff, we could go in and talk about stylistic differences and word usage. And all that to say is that verses 9 through 20 don't seem to be Markian. And, and all the scholars agree on this. And you may say, why in the world would somebody have added this? And it's pretty easy. I think the scribe looked at it and said, it can't end this way. What a strange way for this to end. In fact, if you go and look at verses 9 through 20, these are all verses that we find in the other Gospels except for drinking of the poison. It's all in other Gospels. And so what some scribe did is he just kind of said, oh, okay, here's what we have in the other Gospels. I'm just going to finish the story. <laughs> and so can it end this way? Isn't it strange? Look at the ending. So think of this gospel ending this way. They went out and fled from the tomb for fear, for, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. End of the gospel of Mark. <laughs> Shock and awe. The women in the empty tomb. And they're amazed. They're fearful. Could it end this way? Well, it certainly began with a bang. It certainly began with a bang. At the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we have no angels. Have nothing about Mary. We have nothing about Joseph. No Elizabeth. No Zechariah. No sheep. No swaddling clothes. If it was a movie, this would just begin, boom, John the Baptist. John the Baptist in the wilderness, and then Jesus comes, and we get verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then we have this refrain that we have heard over and over in our study. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven and said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if you've been with us, one of the themes that we have seen that we got from these verses is that this was a fulfillment of Isaiah 64. The heavens being opened in Isaiah, the, the prophet is lamenting, oh, that you would rend, tear the heavens and come down 
And that's what Mark is telling us that happened. Open the scene, John, the heavens torn, God himself, God in the flesh comes down. Boom, it starts with a bang. And everyone there should have been amazed and astonished and blown away. But that's not what happened. And then Mark writes this in a way to where the heavens are torn. God is here. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the divine, the son of God is with us. And then we have this refrain immediately, 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 immediately. And we end at the tomb. This book, and if you've been with us, you know this. There's a lot of repeating that I'm going to do this morning. But one of the themes of this book is a declaration of who he is. Who is Jesus? And then what is our response? And we have seen this all over this book. And then we get to the end. We get to the end of this book. And we have on the cross, Jesus dying his last. And the very first human to rightly declare who he is, is this Roman centurion who says, truly, this is the son of God. And we have Mark tell us as Jesus is on the cross that the curtain was torn, alluding back to this whole idea that this is God in the flesh who has come to us. And in our text this morning. We are told in verse six. That he is not here. Here is where they laid him. But he is not here. And notice in verse 7. Speaking to these women. He says. Just as he told you. And so I think what is going on at this moment. These women are just flooded with emotion. They're flooded with Thoughts, they're flooded with Jesus's own words. And I think in their hearts and in their minds and in their soul, it's my opinion that at this moment that they are saying with the centurion, surely this was the son of God. They thought they were coming to find a body and he was risen just as he had told them. His words his predictions, and who he really was, was truly settling in. Some find a problem in verse 8, at the end where it said, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid, and you know they were commanded to go tell the other disciples and Peter. And I think it's very clear what happened. They obviously went and told the other disciples and Peter. We know that from the other Gospels and from the book of Acts. But I think what we have happening here and what we are supposed to be left with is that in this moment, they were so overwhelmed that they were literally speechless. And I think, I think, I know that as we have been journeying through Mark, One of the things that has been missing over and over as we have been finding out who this man is, is this response. Finally, the right response. Finally, the right response to who Christ is. The holy, sovereign Lord. And the only proper response 
to being in the presence of the sovereign Lord of the universe is astonishment and fear. Every time we talk about fear and we talk about that being a response of being in the presence of God or in the presence of Christ, it ruffles feathers. And everybody quotes the Bible, wait a minute, Lewis, perfect love casts out fear. This word fear is used 11 times in this book. And I, I just want to journey with you just a couple of places where it's used. And you'll, you'll see what kind of fear Mark is, is calling us to. In chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm. And then in verse 41, so Jesus has just calmed the storm. And he says to them in verse 40, and he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Notice this. They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? At this moment, there was a glimpse into who he is and the power that he has. And the response is fear. And the response is, who is this that even the wind and the waters obey him? In chapter 5, if you remember, if you were with us, where Jesus healed the woman who had been with this blood disease for 12 years. She touched him and she was healed. And as he turns around and he says, who has done this? In verse 33 of chapter 5. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So when she had encountered the healing powers of the sovereign king of the universe, aware of what had happened to her, there was fear. There was trembling. And then in chapter 6, Jesus had sent the disciples on. And then Jesus came walking on water. And remember, we covered that he was going to pass right by him. And we get in verse 50, Jesus is walking on the water. And they say, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. Over and over in Mark's account, we have these miraculous, beyond belief deeds that Christ does to demonstrate exactly who he is. And the response is fear. Now, I want to be careful. When, I, when we're using the word fear in this context, I think we're using fear in a way of awe and astonishment. Not fear as in the boogeyman. Or fear that Jesus is going to like, you know, smash you or lightning bolts are going to come out of his fingers and crush you. But fear in the sense of awe. And we've all experienced this. Hopefully we've experienced this by coming in contact with the creator of the universe of Jesus Christ. And in the moment that we realized he is who he said he was, that we were in this sense of awe and astonishment. But if you haven't experienced that, you have experienced this in your life, whether it's 
some miraculous piece of art or some music or some landscape in which you just felt so small. You were just in awe. It's the natural way for you to feel. That there is something that is way bigger, way more powerful and way greater than who you are. And in this moment. In this moment. These women were so astonished that it literally left them speechless, literally took their breath away. As I was thinking about this. One of the things I was reminded of is as the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, there are so many times that he's thinking about how great Christ is and he is in the middle of doing something and he can't help but breaking out in a song. At the beginning of 1 Timothy in chapter, in chapter 1 verse 17, he breaks out in King of ages, immortal, invisible, only God, to whom all the glory and honor is due. As he's in the middle of writing this, this long book of Romans that we treasure so much, in chapter 11, he just as he's talking about how great and awesome and powerful God is, he just breaks out into this doxology randomly. Oh, the depth. Oh, the wisdom. Oh, the riches. This is the kind of awe, this is the kind of astonishment that we are meant to have as well. And I want us to see it this morning. As we've read this book, it's been amazing all the wrong responses to Christ, hasn't it? Let me just remind you of a couple Two places in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus talks about what's going to happen to him. And his death and his burial and his resurrection. In chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly and Peter was in awe and astonishment. That's not what it says. Do you remember what happened? Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Then again in chapter 9 is Jesus again. Verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them. The son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he's been killed. He will rise three days later. But they didn't understand the statement. And they were afraid to ask. But they were so amazed. That they had these thoughts of grandeur about how great Christ is. Isn't that what happened? No, that's not what happened, is it? Verse 33, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. No awe, no astonishment, no glory. It was all self-focused. Get this. It happens. He goes to the cross. Was there awe? Was there wonder? 
They ran. The religious leaders of the day were the ones who put Him on that cross. And they were mocking Him. They were hurling insults at Him. The Roman soldiers who executed Him were tearing His garments, were placing a crown of thorns upon His head in a mocking manner. There was no awe. There was no astonishment. The passers-by and the crowds were walking by and they were wagging their heads and wagging their fingers and hurling insults at Him like this. Hey, if you can save others, save yourself. You see, when your idea of Christ and who He is is small, your response to Him is going to be completely wrong. Completely wrong. What about you? What about you? When was the last time that you were overwhelmed with who this Christ is? When is the last time that the glory of seeing this risen Christ for who He is took your breath away? Or caused you to rejoice? You see, the amazing thing, one of the amazing things about this text, one of the amazing things about the Gospel of Mark is that Mark is not just telling us That this is the sovereign king of the universe. But he's telling us that the sovereign king of the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. That this this God who is so great and so holy and so other has come and he dwelt among us. And as we look at this gospel of Mark, he does these crazy things. The craziest thing that he does is that he has compassion on people like you and I. Who are so unworthy, so undeserving. He went to the sickest of the sick and the vilest of the vile. And he loved them. We're told over and over in this gospel of the book of in the book of Mark. We're told over and over that he was moved with compassion. He fed 4,000. Then he fed 5,000. He sat and he taught. And in the midst of our brokenness and chaos, he became flesh and dwelt with us. And he endured our lack of faith. And it's constant. Months ago, we talked about this, but, but even think about this. This sovereign king who told these disciples what he was going to do and then did it. This sovereign king who told Peter that you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, may it never be. And not only denied him, but cursed him. And here we have the character of this God who has come and dwelt among us in verse 7. 
where he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. I'm not done with Peter. He's not done with you. He loves us. And he cares for us. And this verse 8 is very, very fitting. Fear and astonishment grip them. Because Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And they had glimpses of who he was. But just like over and over in this ministry. Jesus was declaring to them and is declaring to us. That he is what this word says that he is and more. And more. So much so that we can't even wrap our brains around it. These women, we learned in chapter 15, these women that are at the tomb were also at the crucifixion. And Mark told us when they were at the crucifixion that they had been with him in his ministry, ministering to him in Galilee. They had been with him the whole time, and yet they knew who he was. They saw him live. They saw him die. And at this moment, they were blown away because their minds were beginning to grasp the entirety just a piece of the entirety of who he is. And so there's no better way to end this gospel. There's no better way to end it than awe and amazement. But what you see, and I hope what you've picked up on as you've been listening to these verses, is that that's not all. The same pattern we have had in the book of Mark is alive and well here. We have this revelation of who he is in verse 6. He is not here. He is who he said he was. He is risen from the grave. And then in verse 7, there's the declaration, the revelation of who he is. And then in verse 7, the question becomes, what are you going to do? As notice, upon this revelation, he gives these women a job to do. Go and tell. Go to Galilee. There's a response that they are supposed to have. This is the end of the beginning. And the question, if we, if, if we didn't know anything else about the Bible and we read this Gospel of Mark, this would be a major cliffhanger. What's going to happen next? Are they going to go and tell the disciples and Peter? Or are they going to be like those disciples and tremble back in fear over what might happen? And we know that that's not what happened. They went and they fulfilled this calling. And the work of building the church began. And I find it interesting That in verse 7, he said he's going ahead of you to Galilee. And if you've been with us, you know that this is going back to the beginning of his ministry. Going back to the beginning. Going back to Galilee. And in some ways, I think, I am speculating here, that this is kind of a metaphor for us. That our call in the Christian life, when we see who Christ is, 
that the call in our life is that we are constantly going back to the beginning. Back to the teachings. Back to the examples. And that we are constantly being called out with a mission that we have to do. You see, they thought. They thought before Jesus was crucified that. This was going to be the end. That Christ had come, Messiah was here, he was establishing a rule and they were going to rule with him. Remember when they were sitting outside the temple? They're like, what about this temple? And we, we, we looked at that and we said that we really think that the disciples were saying, man, this is going to be a great place for us to live. And then Jesus completely shatters that worldview. This is the end of the beginning. It is a viable question, isn't it? If we didn't have any other, if we hadn't read the book of Acts, it's a viable question of what would happen? Would they fail? Would they go into hiding? And one commentator says this, in the Christian life, failure is not a dead end. Christ has come for the failures. Christ has come for you and for me who have been faithless, who have hidden, who have lived in such a way to where Christianity was just a part of who we are when it's convenient. But Christ is a savior of the weak. And he empowers the weak to do great things. And so the question this morning the question this morning that the ending of this book is asking of us is the same question that we're asking of these women and of the men that they told. What will you do with this message that you've been given? Will you go? We don't know where we are on the timeline. Christ could return this afternoon and that would be great and glorious and I would welcome that with everything that I am. Or. He could tarry for a couple of hundred more years. The question remains the same. Have you interacted with the sovereign king of the universe? And what is your response going to be? Are you going to live a life? Live a life. That is no longer about self-preservation and self-promotion. But are you going to live a life that's going to cost you a lot? But it's going to be the most glorious adventure you've ever taken. It may cost you your job. It may cost you your popularity. It may cost you your status. And for some, it may even cost you your life. But brothers and sisters, when you've truly seen this Christ, the only proper response is all in. My hope is sure. I'm in the game. So will we do our part? Will we be faithful? Will we yield to the Spirit? Will we be the generation, the generation that have been placed for this time, 
to be the ones in our current day and age, to be the ones who proclaim this message so that Christ may continue to build His church in and through us. Will you be the one? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this Gospel of Mark. It has been beautiful. It has been challenging. And it has stirred up so many wonderful truths and ideas. God, we're thankful that you have given us this book. God, I pray that the seed has been sown. And God, I pray that you would bring to fruition from this gospel what you would have for us. If there are any here today. God, who may have never seen you for who you are. God, I pray that you would give them the courage to come and to speak with one of us about that this morning. But for the rest of us, God, I pray. I pray that. Even by looking at the last eight verses of this text. That you would embolden us. To be the kind of people who lay down our lives out of love and mercy and compassion proclaiming this message of hope and salvation only through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.